The scripture this morning is Luke 9, 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mr. Calloway? It's Edward Bloom. I need to talk to you. Mr. Calloway? that night I discovered that most things you consider evil or wicked are simply lonely and lacking in social niceties. clearly tell from the clip. We'll be talking about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ today. <laughs> I need, uh, so I need the grown-ups to help me with this. Fill in the blank. Tim blank lives at home with his parents. Still. Tim still 
lives at home with his parents. Tim is a loser. Anybody ever made an assumption in your life? Anybody ever been wrong about the assumption you made? Tim is nine. Tim is a kid. What we're going to talk about today is how things are not always as they seem. So in this passage in Luke, we have Jesus and, uh, and a few of his disciples, and they're on top of a mountain. And apparently, as is customary, they can't keep their eyes open. And so they're sleeping. And as they're sleeping, Moses and Elijah come to visit Jesus, and they wake up in the middle of all of this. So you can sort of see them rubbing their eyes and trying to understand what's what's going on. And and the narrative reads something like my friend Chris's acid trips that he's told me about in his younger days, right? Jesus' face is disfiguring and moving and his his garments are are white. These two figures that happen to be two people that probably never died are are talking to Jesus, right? Elijah, so he's taken away in a fiery chariot and Moses goes to the top of a mountain to look into the promised land that he can't enter and God takes him. He's never seen from again. So here they are on top of this mountain and these guys are just waking up and I thought, okay, so let me put myself in their, in their shoes. I'm Peter. I'm waking up. I yawn. I look over. Here's Jesus dazzling white with Moses and Elijah and what would I what would I say and I would say holy and maybe other things so you got to understand the situation that they're in right so there Peter jumps to his feet and he's trying to process this whole thing and he's like Jesus this is awesome that we should be here what we need to do is throw up a few tents for you guys one for each of you. And this word tent in the, he, in the uh, Greek language is skinny. It means dwelling. We need to build some dwellings for you, a tabernacle. We need to make this a holy place because this is a holy moment. And we need to commemorate this and, and remember this. And so that's not necessarily a bad reaction on Peter's part. Or, or, or is it? The Bible is full of stories that demonstrate how things are not always how they seem. It's full of stories about how our assumptions can lead us to agreements that can lead us to believing things that are false, that can lead us to making judgments that are incorrect, And if they can just bump us off our trajectory just a bit, if we go on down the path a few decades, we're nowhere near where our life was headed and where it was meant to be. The Bible is full of stories like this. Moses 
leads the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's on top of Mount Sinai with the Lord. The glory of the Lord has descended upon the mountain. And 40 days later, the children of Israel decide, they assume, that he's just not coming back. So, they decide to pool their resources of gold and erect a calf of gold and decide that's the God that has led them out of Egypt. Second Kings chapter 6, the story of Elisha. Israel is under attack. They're under siege. And yet somehow the Israelites know what's going on. They always know the moves of the enemy. Come to find out there's a prophet in Israel. His name is Elisha. He keeps telling of the movements. So the enemy decides to find Elisha. So they surround the city that he's in overnight. Elisha's servant wakes up the next morning, looks out over the city and sees that they are utterly surrounded. And he goes and wakes up his master and says, Master, we are sur- we're, de- we're done. There's no way out of this. Elisha says, open his eyes, Lord, that he might see. And when the Lord opens his eyes, he sees that the host of heaven's armies are around them. And he sees that there are more that be with us than are with them. Things are not always as, as they seem. The relig- religious class in Jesus' time, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're trying to test Jesus. They're getting jealous of him. They're trying to trick him, but they're testing him. Because he's breaking all the rules. Rules that have been in place for over a thousand years. So they make an assumption that there's no possible way this guy can be who he says he is. So they plot to kill him. An incorrect assumption. Worthy of death, they feel. Adam and Eve in the garden are talking to the serpent. And the serpent suggests that there may be a reality that God hasn't revealed, that God is possibly holding out on them. How many times have we done that same thing? How many times have we fallen for that same trick? Right? So they make an assumption that God's holding out out on them and they eat the forbidden fruit and mankind falls. We could go on and on and on. Bishop Jared was with us this Friday. Right? It was great. Those of you who were here, it was great to have a Rwandan bishop here with us. And um, most of you don't know this, and I'll take just a second to introduce him. We actually have another bishop in our presence this morning. His name is Wayne, Bishop Wayne Busada, from the Communion of Evangelical Episcopal Churches. So he is uh, one of, how many bishops are, are there? Uh, around the world, there's about 35. So 35 bishops in about 2,000 congregations. 6,000 6, congregations. So uh, he lives here in Spring Hill with his wife, Stephanie, who is a contemporary Christian artist that I listened to while I was growing up. So what an honor to have them with us here, here today. In fact, we just want to recognize you. So Bishop Jared is, uh, is talking about the genocide in Rwanda and how the Hutus 
were indoctrinated to believe that the Tutsis were cockroaches and they should all be killed. And the Hutus bought it. They assumed for whatever reason that this is correct. One million men, women, children, and babies were macheted and gunned down in three months in that country because of a very incorrect assumption. People on the Titanic, when the iceberg was struck, mostly went about their business. They assumed that the ship was unsinkable. This is the story of our lives. We don't like loose ends. So when we look across the horizon of our lives and there's a blank spot and there's a piece missing, we don't like that. So we fill in the blanks ourselves so that it looks like a complete story. How many times have we done this? We have a piece of a story and a little bit of knowledge about the facts but we're not dialed into what's really going on in a person's heart, but we don't like these loose ends. So we make up what's in the middle. We bridge the gap with information that we think is plausible, but we've all agreed that we're wrong about this sort of thing a lot. So what are we doing when we fill in the blanks? If we're wrong, we're believing a lie, right? We're living in a false reality all together this is a dangerous thing we have spent a lot of time since we've started worshiping together talking about wounds right wounds the arrows that hit our lives with messages attached to them and because they're dealt with such pain the message feels like it's true and so we agree with the message of the arrow and live as if it were true. That's something that deeply affects our inner life, and it affects the way that we look at the world. Assumptions do the same thing to our external world. When we fill in the blanks, because we don't like the loose ends, and we send that story on down the line as if it were true, and it's not true, there's irreparable damage that can be done in people's lives. So an assumption might give us an explanation for something that we don't know, but we're agreeing that a lot of the time we're wrong. A lot of the time we're wrong. So the danger is that we're living with a false reality externally as much as believing the lie of the wounds of our lives would cause us to do the same thing inwardly. One thing that I, that I hadn't planned to say, but I, I think this is important to bring this out. When we do this kind of stuff, it is really, really dangerous. When we have a conversation with somebody and we decide that we've read their emotions and then we go tell the story differently than it was 
it's not correct. When we have some of the facts and we fill in the blanks and we tell the story as if it happened that way, it's not correct. And it's, it's dangerous. And it's interesting where this kind of stuff comes from. Usually, it comes down to pride because we feel like we should be dialed in. We should know what's going on. We want to have those conversations as if we know what's going on. So we make these assumptions that fill in the blank to make it look like we know what's going on. And unfortunately, half the time we're wrong altogether. Well, now, when we've had this conversation with other people, we've kind of shaped this into a bit of gossip. And this gets very, very deadly. And I bring it up like this now because we've all agreed to live in community. This kind of stuff can kill community. This kind of stuff will kill us. I, don't, I think we have agreed that we have been wounded enough by other Christians as a community that we sort of know what to look out for and we have fought for each other over these months. I've seen um, a real healthy ability among people to go after things instead of stuff them down and let them fester and turn into bitterness. So what that tells me is we're fighting for each other. We're going after whatever it is right now, even though that might be uncomfortable, rather than letting it fester and, and create bitterness and cause division and undo us. That's healthy. This assumption thing, though, is a great warning. If we don't know what's going on, we don't know what's going on. It's better to say, I don't know what's going on than live in a false reality. Dad, what are you doing here? Take a couple of weeks off. Your grandfather saved all of his life to bring the family to this country. He got a good job. Stockyard, he had a nice little house in South Chicago. I was about 12. Somebody sold him on the idea he ought to move to the country and become a dairy farmer. sell the land. There's no work. So one day, he took off. 
take them back. My brothers and me, we split up to live with friends and relatives. <sighs> Chasing a stupid dream causes nothing but you and everyone around you heartache. Notre Dame is for rich kids, smart kids, great athletes. It's not for us. You're a Rudiger. There's nothing in the world wrong with being a Rudiger. You can have a nice life. Frank is going to take over plan number two. In a couple years, you make more than me and Johnny. You know he's in charge of the expansion program. I don't want to be Frank. assumption turned into a false reality and relayed on down the line can cause terrible damage to people's lives. So in this clip we have this father who has seen his father fail and has decided that is the future for his son or his son to follow his heart in any way. And so were the son to listen to his father in this story, he'd be chained to a life that he was never meant to live. He would always live with regret. The assumption is there that you are going to fail. Notre Dame isn't for you. It's not for people like us. We're somehow less. There's nothing wrong with being less. But somehow we're inferior. And this is what you need to accept. This is the resignation. This is the resolve that you need to live under, right? Assumptions all around our lives shape the way we make decisions and the way we judge things. We're grasping at the unknown and so often it's motivated by fear, which ends up with pride. Here's the irony. The interesting thing about an assumption is that it actually comes from a good place. You see, living by faith takes the same stuff. Faith is the substance, according to the Apostle Paul, of what we hope, right? It's the evidence of what's missing. It's the evidence of what we can't see. So as we're living by the Holy Spirit, we can take the leap of faith. We can see through the eyes of faith what it is that God is doing. The blank is filled in with the reality. When we live under assumptions, this is basically us taking faith into our own hands and saying, by my own strength and under my own terms, I'm creating the reality that I want to see here. I'm trying to make the pieces fit. You see the difference. One is us surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and walking by faith. The other is us making assumptions, trying to fill in the blanks as we go under our own strength. In the book of Mark, chapter 5, there's this story. 
There's a guy, he works at the synagogue. His daughter is really sick. And you have to put yourself in the father's position here. His daughter's getting worse. They've done everything they know what to do. He needs to go get some help, but he doesn't know where. He's heard of this rabbi that has power to heal. But would that rabbi even come? And if he leaves his daughter and something happens, how's he going to forgive himself? But it comes down to there's no other choice. So he goes in search of Jesus, and he finds Jesus. And he's actually able to get through the crowd and speak to Jesus and tell him his plight. And Jesus agrees to go back with him. So they're on their way back home when word arrives, don't bother the master. She's already died. Can you imagine what the father is feeling like now? I wasn't there for my little girl. If I had just left an hour earlier, I mean, he's on his way. Jesus is with me on his way to my house. So you can imagine what must have been going through his mind. And here's Jesus saying, look, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Let's just keep going. So we we pick up the, the narrative at verse 37. Christian, can you pop that slide, the next slide up? Thank you. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Now, this is customary in Jewish culture. They make a big deal out of their losses. So when somebody dies, especially a child, they really make a big deal out of it. In that time, you could even hire professional mourners who would come and wail and cry so that everybody around would know that there's been such a great loss. So that's what it appears is going on. There's this loud wailing going on when Jesus arrives. And he he walks in and says to them, Why all the commotion and wailing? child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. So what's going on here? The assumption is that the little girl has died. Why would they assume such a thing if she was just asleep? I mean, you'd think probably she stopped breathing or something, right, to indicate that she's dead. And yet Jesus is saying she's not dead. She's just asleep. How have we done the same thing in our own lives? What is dead in your heart? What dreams have you said, this has died? This is no longer Alive. What did you hope for that you feel like this is no longer alive? What relationships have broken apart along the way and you, you feel this is dead? There's no hope for this. There's no resurrection for this. This is dead. 
what pieces of ourselves do we think are gone? Now, what if Jesus were to say, it's not dead. It's just asleep. Would you laugh? What would be our reaction if Christ came and said, you've been living under a false assumption, son. You've been living under a false assumption, sweetheart. It's not dead. It's just asleep. Would you laugh? So the story of the transfiguration ends significantly. Peter is saying we need to build a holy place here. And he's getting the plans together because this is what he assumes they should do. This is what he's seeing that should be done here. And as he's saying this, the cloud of God's glory is rolling in around them. And they're freaking out. They're getting afraid. And the cloud of God's glory envelops them and basically cuts Peter off and says, this is my son whom I have chosen. He could have stopped right there, but he didn't. Listen to him is what God said. And then just like that, it's over. They're alone with Jesus again. Are we willing to live this way? We're going to listen to a song and I want you to close your eyes and consider the things that you have thought were dead and ask yourself if you are willing to listen to Jesus that they may just be asleep. But it fattened up when we didn't fall off. Now we spin laps around the sun. All the gods lost to one. And holes to heaven pointed out to us from light years away. We're surrounded by a billion galaxies. Things are not. Don't turn 
Spirit, we invite you to come into the areas where we've filled in the blanks out of the need to know, out of fear, out of pride, and we repent. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to tear down the false places that we've been living under assumptions that aren't true and allow us to begin to see through the eyes of faith what is really going on here. Things are not always as they seem. Your ways are so often counterintuitive to the ways that we think, but you are true, and you are good, and you are just, and you are kind, and we trust you, and we dedicate this moment to fully trusting what you have to say. Forgive us for the assumptions that we've made that things have died. When they aren't dead, they are asleep. Come, Holy Spirit, with your resurrection power and show us these areas that are missing from the body because we've agreed that they are dead and they are missing and we are suffering individually and collectively as a community because of it. Bring those things back. We need them. We give you permission. No matter what that might look like, no matter how painful it might be to go back to the place where we thought it was dead, we go back there with you in hopes that it is only asleep. Come, Lord Jesus, we give you permission as we come to your table. We pray that we have poured ourselves out in worship before you, that we are empty before you, that we are open before you, that there is nothing between us and you and nothing between us and our fellow man. Fill us anew by the power of your Holy Spirit. May the things 
that we've thought were gone be restored to us. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. The only name by which any of this would be possible, the only name by which any of this should be spoken of, the name of Jesus. Pray in Christ's name.